Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about connection. I will, of course, first define it and then talk about how to see connection in a whole new way, a way that originates in the definition of connection itself. So welcome. A connection is a link, simply that. And I propose that language is what links us all, links us to ourselves, to others, and to the world at large. We have links within us in the form of actual internal physical connections, such as the connection of a tendon to a bone, the connection between two neurons, which takes the form of neurotransmitters that cross the synaptic space. Hormones are connectors between body tissues, and all of this is a form of language. So too, we have the link or connection between people, people and animals, people and nature. These are all connections we most often are unaware of. This is where language is the connector, and each of these connectors can be seen as a feedback loop, a form of reciprocity, which is really a language and communication. To help me today, my dear friend Rebecca Doring, a healer in her own right, has joined me for this topic. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. Nice to be back. Nice to see you. Thank you. Today, we are going to be talking about creating connection where there is conflict and creating connection in relationships. I'm so excited for the topic of today's episode because of the state of where we are right now in time. It seems like no matter where we look, there's so much conflict. And your model offers us a way to create connection through that conflict. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Yes. And for me, it's not only conflict that I'd like to shift, it's the disconnection also. So the conflict is a form of connection. And it's not a form that is actually very nourishing. It doesn't produce outcomes that serve us as humans. So my interest in in changing that is connecting on a different level. And in order to do that, I like to look at language. I'm going to also talk about language, connection between people, but also within ourselves, because I think the inside and the outside are mirrors of each other, as within, so without. Mm -hmm. So I'll start off with lack of connection or conflict between two people. If I'm in conflict with someone, that conflict becomes the connection. It carries a life of its own. And it's oftentimes hard for people to get outside of that way of communicating with each other. And if you look in the world today, you can see it everywhere. You can see it between people, between nations. You can see it in our own nation, in in Congress, in politics, in all forms. And it doesn't seem to really get us anywhere. So my interest in connection is about changing that model, that paradigm that people are in. And one of the ways of doing it is, A, to find common ground. And being that we're all pretty much humans, it's quite easy. We have similar physiologies. We have similar languages. If not the spoken language, our emotional languages and nonverbal languages are common to all of us. Because 90% of communication is silent. And so to use those languages to connect in another way is to me vital. 
research shows that um, in verbal connection, in verbal language, 70% of what is communicated is nonverbal, and it's in the tone. So you can use words, but it's the tone that you present them in that has much more of an impact on the person that you're speaking to. And understanding the tone that you're using is vital to changing conflict. So I can say something to you like, you're wonderful. Or I can say, you're wonderful. And you're going to listen to the tone of it more than the words. So true. And between people, particularly people who are um, in conflict, it, it tends to escalate because they're actually listening to the tone more than the words and not realizing it. So true. And I'm curious to hear more about conflict becomes a form of connection. And could that be what is going on today where people are feeling so disconnected and the only way they know how to connect is through conflict? It could very well be. If you take the history, for instance, of the Middle East, their connection between Israel and Palestine has been a connection They've interacted through conflict. The amount of conflict that happens versus the amount of peaceful interaction are two very different forces. So the force of conflict is much greater than the force of connection. Mm, Makes sense. However, in that conflict, there is a connection. They're connecting with each other, particularly right now, with fighting. Fighting is a form of connection. I'm connected to you through arguing or through fighting. If I turn and walk away, then, then that cuts the connection. So the question is how to connect in a way that moves one or moves two people or two beings, two countries forward rather than being stuck in the back and forth. I love what you were saying with the whole, okay, we have a conflict becomes the connection. So then why would we want to actually connect? And you, you purposefully addressed that by saying, then the question becomes, how do we move forward together rather than being stopped? So the reason that kind of connection maintains itself is because of the intensity of it. We're addicted to intensity. So in my mind, it's not functional. But it is easier to maintain intensity than to calm down and move forward with a common language. So the the thing to do is to find a common language so that you can move forward together. What it requires is that I have to change how I see and hear you. And so I can see you differently. And if I'm fighting with you and you're really angry, and I'm really angry, I can look at what in this situation makes me angry. Because anger usually comes from a feeling of powerlessness. Why do I feel powerless in this situation? As two adults in our world, there's really not a lot to feel powerless about. You know, somebody's not holding a gun to my head, um... In, in this situation. So if I can step back, internally step back and ask myself, am I really being threatened here? Am I literally being threatened here? And if I'm not, if this is just a verbal interchange, then I can stop myself from being so angry and I can park the anger somewhere inside of me to be dealt with later and deal with you from a different place. I could see you differently. I could see you as a little girl who's not being heard. And if I looked at you as a little girl who's not being heard rather than an adult who's attacking me, then I see, oh, she just wants to be heard. And then it changes my whole state. And in changing my state and listening to you, it will then change your state. 
because you don't have anything to come up against. If I'm just seeing you as a little girl who's not been hurt and I'm listening to you, then eventually you're going to understand that and, and not be and calm down and not be so angry. Makes so much sense. So that comes back to what you were saying about how the first step is to find a common ground. And there are so many forms of communication happening outside of just the words, the emotions, the tone, the uh, nonverbal language of the body. So are there other ways, aside from just noticing, okay, here's the anger, or other forms of language to to notice or become aware of? Well, I, I find that if I go inside of myself and ask myself why I'm so angry, that that is the one thing I have power over. I can't change anybody outside of myself, but I can change myself. And oftentimes, if I look at it symbolically, I look and see that the person that I'm angry at or arguing with actually represents something inside of me that's unresolved, something usually from my childhood. So if it's a woman, oftentimes it will represent my mother or my sister or some unresolved conflict with them. And then I can say to myself, well, she's not my mother. I don't have to be this angry. I can chill out and I can communicate on a different level with her. Or he's not my father. Why am I so upset? I'm not powerless. I may have been powerless as a child, but I'm not now. And that way I take back my power as I'm interacting and I can therefore change the conflict into actually connection on a whole different level. How do you specifically internally change that experience for yourself? First, I have to sort of mentally stop and ask myself internally what's going on. Then I look externally at the person and say, who do they represent? Then I look at myself and say, why am I having this feeling? And if I realize that they represent something from my childhood, then I get a feedback loop, which is actually in my physiology. I'm having a childhood reaction in an adult situation that isn't the original situation in which this feedback loop was installed inside of my nervous system. Can you define what a feedback loop is? A feedback loop is a connection. And it's either a connection within myself, within my own nervous system or cardiac system or whatever system in my physiology that's active, or a connection between myself and another person. And so when we're arguing, let's say, the feedback loop is you're angry, I'm angry, and anger feeds on anger, and that's the feedback loop. If you change to quiet stillness, then it changes the feedback loop because I'm getting, instead of getting anger back at me, I'm getting quiet stillness. That changes the whole situation. So if I go inside of myself and look at my own physiology, how I'm feeling, the state I'm in, if I'm really angry, and I combine the outside with the inside in terms of, let's pretend that I say, you're not really my mother. This, this reaction is way overblown. Then I can go inside into my own body and, and sort of say to my body, she's not your mother. You're okay. You're safe. And then I create a safe feedback loop inside of my body that I can then project outward as I interact with you. How does this affect the other person? It affects the other person because it changes the feedback loop between us. It changes the emotional state in the actual conflict. And if you don't have something to come up against, if you're, if you're boxing and, and it, you know, it turns out you're boxing air 
you're, you're just going to stop. You're going to ch- you're going to stop and say, "Wow, what's this about?" And you're going to change your own reaction. So then you're saying that by tuning inward, you have the power to create a new connection, a new feedback loop within yourself, and then that opens up the doorway to possibly change the connection and the feedback loop between yourself and another in a relationship. And finding common ground with the other person, finding common humanity that is, is not based on anger or on emotions that cause conflict. We can all fight. That's easy. I remember there's a great quote from some osteopath, may have been A.T. Stiller, it may have been Phil Greenman, and he said, find health. Anyone can find disease. So it's like find health in, in the relating. Anybody can find conflict. That's easy. It's more difficult to find a connection than it is to find conflict. And do you do that by seeking to find reciprocity? Reciprocity to me is, is, a, is a form of connection. And it's a healthy form of connection where you go back and forth. It promotes growth. Reciprocity is a back and forth. So you get signaling back and forth between two people or amongst people, between two nations. So it then is a connection that allows for growth and change. With your model, we're taking a connection that's formed through conflict or disconnection, that that type of connection is at a stop. There's no growth happening. It's just two beings or two parties coming at it at each other. Then by looking at everything as language, using your model, you can create internal new feedback loops within a relationship which then can ultimately create reciprocity, which allows both parties to grow and move forward. How did you discover this? I just watched people. I watched and I did a lot of research on psychology and watched what happened when I was treating people, watched the physiology of bodies I was working on. When I have my hands on somebody's body, I'm connected to them on a sort of unconscious, nonverbal level but the body is still talking to me. And when, the, the, when there's a disconnect between what the body is saying and what the human being is saying verbally, I tend to go with the body because the body never lies. And so there's a disconnect between the person and their own physiology. And in some ways I became the link, the feedback loop between their body and what, how they saw things. And I would then question them. And when, when I got an answer that made their physiology change, then I knew that that was a truth. I could feel the release of their physiology or their tissues under my hand, and then we could move on from there. There's something about the the physical body, the physiology, the tissues themselves are talking all the time, and that's what I listen to. I did that because growing up in, in my family, nobody... Either people didn't talk or the talking they did was not truth. And I didn't have any real gauges. And so when I treat people, and this is many years of treating, I I just started to see, particularly when I would work with uh, kids with cerebral palsy, they would, at that time, I don't know what it's like now, at that time I used to work with a lot of kids that had cerebral palsy. And at that time, the paradigm was that it was a neurological brain problem. And I just never believed that it was that simple. I thought the physical form, the body itself, carried a lot. And I 
came from an emotional model place. And so I would get changes in spasticity in cerebral, kids with cerebral palsy by working in the emotional arena with them. And that went against all the orthodoxy. But I could feel it, and their, and their function would change, and their movement would change, so I just knew it was right. And I also knew it was right because I'd done work on my own body. I used my own body as a laboratory. And I saw the changes in the tone in my own muscles when I released the suppressed emotions that were held in my fascia. Since that time, there's been some research done that has shown that the receptors in the fascia are connected to the emotional centers in the brain. And these receptors impact spasticity so that it is not totally a brain problem with cerebral palsy. It's also in the body itself. And so I created a different feedback loop in their bodies and changed how they moved. And they changed how they moved. How? Well, in cerebral palsy, they have a classic gait. I mean, you can walk down the street and see a kid. They aren't, they're not around so much anymore, but you could see somebody with a certain kind of gait that just said cerebral palsy. Sort of like when somebody's had a stroke, they have a, um, a typical way of of showing that in their physical form, you can you just see it. There are certain patterns that happen neurologically, people that have that kind of insult or dysfunction. So what would happen is what you would see in cerebral palsy, what caused that abnormal gait was what's called spasticity, which is muscle tightness and abnormal movement patterns. And I was taught in school that those were all from the brain and from a problem with the brain. Coming from another angle, when I would treat it and get changes, then their, for instance, their gait would change or their ability to feel would change. Their function would change. Their speech would change depending on where I was working. And I took it from there. That to me was a language. And the feedback loop for me was the change in the spasticity under my hands and then the change in the function on the part of the kid. And that all happened because I had a different perception of that dysfunction. So I perceived it as possibly not just a brain problem, looked at the body itself, the physiology, brought in the emotional piece and started working on, I mean, for me, a body is a body is a body. And I would get changes in, in the tone or the spasticity and that gave changes in function. So it was really a change in my perception that was then addressed. That's how I saw the kids and that would change, ultimately change their function. You saw it, in essence, as a conflict. There was a conflict that if I follow this other paradigm, I don't really have much to go on. But if I instead see everything as language, then I have an opportunity to create That's some a really interesting way to put it. I saw it as boring, actually. That's how <laughs> I saw it. And I was wanted to challenge myself to, I just believe these kids could function more. I just believed it. And so I had to find the root the reason or the neurology or whatever that would get them to function differently. And because they're kids and they're young and they have the rest of their lives, I, it was really important to me to give them as much potential as possible. And I wasn't interested in bracing. At that point, there was a lot of bracing going on. I'm not sure what's happening today. And I, so I educated myself about anatomy and physiology and mechanics and the, how the body works and alignment and force vectors and fascia and cranial and I, I brought all of that to the kids with cerebral palsy 
and it changed how they functioned. It, to me, it was an experiment. It's funny, it's a feedback loop right there because to me, it was an experiment. They were sort of my guinea pigs. And I like the immediate feedback of a change in tissue tone. Right, and you were searching for common ground by working with the fascia, working with... And I was also... I also understood what normal was normal, quote unquote, is in anatomy and understanding the biomechanics and what should be normal. I had something to to work toward functionally, and I just had a belief in the potential. So could you apply this same thing to the everyday aches and pains and dis-ease that most of us experience? Yes. For me, it's about vision and imagining. Many years ago, I was working with this little boy, and oh gosh, he was so beautiful. And he had a speech problem, he was, but he was so gorgeous. And I looked at him, I thought, oh my God, he was maybe two or younger. Look at the potential in him. We're all born with so much potential, and we sort of lose it. And so I, I just decided then and there that I was going to get back to that potential no matter what, that that was my birthright. And I think it's everybody's birthright, and, and we may not get back there, but it's certainly worth a try. And the body has profound abilities to heal itself. We just have to understand how to get into those, to access those abilities. And do you do that by seeking to find reciprocity between yourself and the body, or? I think it goes back to, you asked about reciprocity, but I think it goes back to connecting on a different level, mm -hmm. whatever that means. Because if the connection that I have with myself or with a, a child with cerebral palsy is not producing growth and change, then it's time to change the kind of connection it is. So how can I do it differently? And I, I found in my profession, a lot of people blamed the child or blamed the patient. Or, I mean, I have this quote, and this to me is golden. When I was teaching a young child, it's not that he can't learn, it's that you can't teach. Because every being can learn. Plants can learn. Animals can learn. Every being can learn. And it's figuring out the in, the connection that will promote growth and learning. How do you do that with your own physiology, with your own body? I do it using symbolic language. I, For instance, if I have a dysfunction or a pain or a disease, I go back to the actual definition of it and there are, there are books written on the, the symbolism of different body parts, of different diseases, and, and it opens an avenue into another way of perceiving what's happening. For me, the actual word dis-ease is just that. It's a lack of ease somewhere in your body. And so the question is why. I always ask the question why. Which then opens up the doors to create a connection within yourself. And it's a connection to your body, but it's a connection to your history to when the dysfunction happened, it's a connection to pain itself. Pain is defined as an unpleasant emotional experience by the International Society for the Study of Pain. So I can, instead of saying my back hurts, I can say I'm having an unpleasant emotional experience. What is it? Why is it in my back? I can look up what that part of my back means. And so it gives meaning to suffering, basically. It creates so much opportunity to move forward and so much hope within relationships, within the relationship to your body, within relationships with someone you're arguing with, you, the, with the way you're describing this, it makes me feel hopeful for humanity if they just realize that, wait, we are both two humans. We have the power to find a connection 
if we choose to. And I think not just hope, for me, the word that came up was powerless, particularly in within our bodies. I, I've found over time that there's nothing more hopeless than, for instance, having your back hurt or your jaw hurts or your foot doesn't work or it, it promotes a hopelessness. And so we go to a, a physician or someone, which is fine. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the power to know more about it and to change it in ourselves or to collaborate make a connection with a healer or whoever on a different level so that you can work together to change the, the disease or the dysfunction. And for me, it's really about power. And, and again, to be able, it's, it's, it's to be able in the face of a dysfunction in my body to have ability. Why is that area of my body not able right now to perform its function? Mm. That's the first question. Right, and then it comes down to power within relationships as well, because if exactly. you are feeling that stop, you can feel powerless. And oftentimes, two people arguing are two people who are powerless. There's no power there, except in the argument itself, but there's no forward movement. There's just stasis and powerlessness. It's manifested. Mm. And people think that they're powerful if they yell or if they pontificate or whatever, but it's, it's really, it's a hollow power. It's not an ability. You're not, you're not making change happen. It just seems so ridiculous to me. If you could give me just one thing to focus on beginning with, of trying to create a connection within myself or with, within a relationship. I think the first, the primary principle is to ask yourself, how can I see it differently? How can I redefine it? And there are many avenues to go down. You can look it up. There are many books written about the symbolism of different parts of the body, of different diseases. Louise Hay is one. There's a wonderful book called The Healing Power of Illness. There's a lot of information out there of ways to see differently. And, and that gives you a beginning of changing how you see it. And when you change how you see it, you change the, how the outcome may be. That's so helpful. That sounds like that could almost be a powerful mantra of sorts. That if I am in the heat of an argument, I could ask myself, how can I see this differently? Or how can I see this person differently? How can I see myself differently? So powerful. And, and I think I know that seeing is the first thing. It's not how can I do this differently? It's how can I see it differently? You know, and there's a table here. That table started in somebody's brain as a picture, how they saw it. And then they created it over time, but it starts in your brain as a picture, as a seeing. So seeing or perceiving differently has an impact on the emotional brain and therefore on the physiology. It changes how we connect with ourselves and each other. 